The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 7:31 through 8:9. The word of God speaks to us. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. His disciples called to him and said to them, I have compassion, sorry, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples said, answered him, how can we feed how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied and they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. This is God's word to us. Thank you so much for that. Hey, good morning, y'all. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and I have the honor of uh, preaching every, every so often. And uh, we're going to continue in Mark, as, as we just looked at and heard. Uh, a little bit of family business before we get going. Uh, it's, from my perspective right here, I can see really well um, that uh, the room's pretty full. And so I, I uh, played enough Tetris as a child to see a few places we can add rows. I have the song going in my head right now. Uh, but uh, the, uh, uh, we'll, we'll do that this week. And yet, I just want to kind of give you a friendly reminder, if specifically you're a part of this church, that at the 9 o'clock we've got room, at the 5 o'clock we've got a little room, and so uh, we can be hospitable and uh, really kind to especially those of you who are visiting, if we can uh, come to some other services to make a little more room in this one. Does that sound good? All right. Uh, I, I, as usual, want to pray as we kick off and uh, need to pray. And I'm going to pray for y'all. I invite you to pray for me. And then we'll continue in the Gospel of Mark. So let's, let's pray for one another with one another. Father, we come, and my, my prayer is, is simple and straightforward this morning, that you would help each of us listen and you would help me humbly speak in a way that I really kind of get out of the way and point to you. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would help each of us in this moment. We want to see Jesus clearly. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said, amen. I want to begin by asking myself and, and all of us, what is our biggest spiritual problem? What's our biggest spiritual problem? 
And if, if you begin to think of that, some things might come to mind. And I've gave, I gave you some time to even deeply reflect on that. I imagine each of us can come up with something, if not many things. And yet, as I reflect on my own life, if I were to ask myself that a week ago before I spent some time digging into this particular portion of Scripture, I don't think how I would answer today, um, I would have answered a week ago. I think there's something in this text that is, is brought before us that is a common problem spiritually for each and every one of us that likely is maybe not on our radar as an issue that we really are facing or an area that we have where we're in need of growth. And I think the answer that we'll see today when we ask ourselves, hey, what is a spiritual problem that I face? I think the answer that we see today in this passage is listening. Now, as a parent, when I think of the problem of, of listening, I think of my kids. <laughs> I, I think of, like, so often, uh, every day, I imagine, you're going to hear something come out of my mouth to my kids that goes something along the lines of, my wife told you to fill in the blank. Because if I'm really serious with my kids, I don't refer to Anna as mom. She's, she's my wife, right? There's like an element of personal offense I'm taking with their disobedience. My wife told you to empty the dishwasher four times and you have not done it yet, you know? Or fill, fill in the blank. And I often think of like the, the issue of listening being something that is probably most relevant or maybe even primarily an issue of kids and that we mature and grow out of that. But if I'm honest when I look at my own life, and I think if we're honest and we look at our lives, our inability to listen often doesn't go away. It just transforms and manifests itself in new ways as we get older. And the deal is listening is really important for every relationship, parents to kids, friends, spouses. And yet, listening to God is of utmost importance. And what we see today in this story is it's a story about listening. It's a story about seeing. It's a story about remembering in a way that we understand and we can really know truth. And if you've been studying the gospel of Mark up to this point with us, and we're about halfway done, um, one of the things that we mentioned at the very beginning is that Mark is a gospel uniquely. The, 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 the gospels are the, the story, the historical account of the ministry of Jesus. And one of the things that's unique about Mark in comparison to Matthew and Luke and John is that Mark is the most action-packed gospel. It's breathless in a way. It's, it's nonstop. It just goes and it goes. And we'll feel that today. Bridget only read about half of the scripture we're going to look at this morning, and it comes quickly. But there, there are two parts. All theologians and scholars really agree that there's like two parts of Mark, and they both answer a question. And we're coming to the end of the first part, and the question that it answers is the question, who is Jesus? Now, the second part, which really is going to begin in a few weeks, is the question, what has he come to do? But as we begin to look at this final portion of Mark that is answering the question, who is Jesus, what's interesting is that Mark is plainly telling us the answer, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. That's why he's come. But as fast as the gospel of Mark moves, 
People are really slow to see, to hear, to remember, to understand the truth of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? What can blind us to see this truth? What can stop up our ears that prevents us from hearing? I think the story helps us see and understand. So we're just going to work our way through it. If you're a note taker, we're going to go through five points, but it's just going to take us through this story line by line. So the first thing I want us to see is ears are opened. Again, quickly, let's look at the, the story that kicks this off. Jesus returned with his disciples from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a crowd. They brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And so Jesus, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So this story begins with a man who can't hear and this crowd has gathered around Jesus as so often they do. They know where he is and then they bring him, this man who is deaf, completely deaf, can't hear a thing and they beg Jesus to touch this man, to bless him, to to heal him, I imagine some of them were hoping and had faith for. And Scripture tells us here, John Mark tells us that he has a speech impediment. You know, the, the English doesn't really translate to the degree, the severity of what's happening here. Uh, what, how it really reads is that he had complete and sev- uh, complete severity with difficulty speaking. Nearly impossible for him to even utter a word. Scholars say that likely this man, when he was younger, perhaps as a child, he could hear. And yet something happened. He was either injured or or had a disease that robbed him of his hearing. And as a result, the ramifications of that is that, that now he can hardly speak as well. His speech is hindered. And so what does Jesus do in this situation? Well, the first thing we're told is that Jesus takes this man aside from the crowd privately. And this is easy to overlook. I know we all, if you're like me, we're sitting here and we're like, hey, get to the spitting part. What on earth is happening there, right? And it's easy to just keep on moving through. But there's something here that's really worth mentioning. It's important. Remember the question before us that this portion of the book of Mark is speaking to is who is Jesus? And we see in a beautiful way, even in this small portion of the story, we get an answer that's a beautiful answer to this question. Jesus is a savior that shows kindness. He's honoring this man. That's why he's pulling away. He's not making him a spectacle. He's, he's showing him dignity. Jesus is seeking to have a personal, private, powerful interaction with this man where he's able to receive compassion. So he takes him aside. And then you know, things seem to get strange. After taking him aside, Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. This is shocking to us. It's weird. It's even unsettling or uncomfortable. Jesus puts his fingers in his ears. And how all the commentaries describe this is Jesus isn't just spitting on the ground and touching his tongue. But in fact, 
as a germaphobe like me. <laughs> it's hard to wrap our heads around Jesus is spitting on his finger and then touching his tongue. Well, what's, what's happening here? See, Jesus heals in many, many people. And he does so in many different ways and to the, to the extent that we're, we're familiar if we've been reading any of the gospel of Mark up to this point, that this is new, right? This isn't like a go-to way to heal thus far in Jesus' ministry. He didn't have to do this. This is a Savior who's just grabbed a little girl by the hand and lifted her out of death back into life. This is a Savior who just speaks to demonic oppression when he's not even near the little girl who's being oppressed, and yet she is freed completely. And yet he chooses to heal in this unique way here, unlike he's done before. So, so why is this? He's wanting his disciples to see something. He's wanting us to see something. And this is, this is the answer. Jesus, here in this moment, is giving something of himself to this broken man so he can be healed. And it's beautiful if we can see it. Right, what's the problem? This, this man has dead ears. And so Jesus is going to invade those dead ears with the very life of his fingers. He's going to enter into that deadness to bring his life. His, his tongue is, is chained. It doesn't work. And so Jesus is going to give a bit of himself, his own life, the most eloquent, powerful tongue that's ever been on planet Earth. He's going to take some of that life that, that spit from his own tongue, and he's going to place it on the tongue of this man to say, hey, I'm going to impart just a little bit of myself to you. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of my heart and my compassion and my generosity, who I am. Jesus is imparting something of his own body, his own life to this man who is in need. And this is the thing that we need to see, is that it's just a foreshadow of ultimately what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Here it's a little bit of spit. There it's going to be blood that's given to save our very souls and to wash away our sin. Who is Jesus? Mark is answering. He is life, and he is the author of life who invades our deadness, our brokenness with his life so that we may have life in him. And then what does Jesus say? He looks up to heaven, and John Mark tells us that he sighs deeply. This is like an inward groan. He's deeply moved with compassion and he's wholeheartedly praying and he speaks a word in Aramaic, aphephtha, which is explained for us here to mean be opened. And these ears that have been closed for so many years, they are, at the word of Jesus, they're opened. You just imagine what this man heard for the first time in a long time, if not ever, was it birds singing? Was it people laughing and shouting as they realized what's happening and Jesus is bringing him back to the crowd? Was it the very voice of God who stood before him? And his tongue that was chained is now loose. What do you think he said <laughs> when he was able to speak clearly for the first time in such a long time, if not ever? We don't know, but we know what Jesus said. Jesus charged them not to tell anyone. So he tells the crowd, keep a lid on this, right? And we've seen Jesus do this 
before, and so I'm not going to overly explain it, but just as a reminder that, that Jesus was very concerned that people understand him rightly. And there was just constant and perpetual misunderstanding and false expectations about who Jesus was. People thought he was going to be an earthly king, setting up an earthly kingdom, that he had come to overthrow Rome and reestablish this earthly kingdom of Israel. And the reality that Jesus is trying to communicate is that, hey, your expectations for me as king, Messiah, they're far too small. What I've come to do is far bigger and greater than you can ever imagine. And part of that was just a misunderstanding that Jesus had only come or primarily even come to perform healings and miracles. And as important as healing and miracles are to the ministry of Jesus, they're a picture of the greater reason why he came. And, and Jesus' primary concern is to proclaim and teach about who he is and his kingdom that he's bringing. And he's concerned and why he's continually telling people, hey, don't run and tell everyone about this miraculous healing, is that his ministry is more than just a healing ministry. But what happens is is really, in a way, deeply ironic. Jesus just healed a man who was deaf so that he could hear, and yet then what Jesus has to say, the crowd doesn't listen to. And that sets the stage for the rest of the scripture we're going to see today. Let's look at it together. Second point I want us to see is faithfulness is forgotten. Verse 1, in those days, chapter 8, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away, right? And his disciples answered, verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. So he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, remember that, to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And then he had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000. And he sent them away. So about a month ago, Pastor Steve preached on Mark chapter 6. And he preached a story about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. If you have your Bible, you can probably flip it back one page and you will be able to see that that Jesus is feeding 5,000 people a little bit earlier than this story here, right? So it's important to realize and know that this isn't a retelling of that story, but this is a reworking of that miracle that Jesus, in a beautiful way, is doing what he once did again. It's a different crowd. It's a different location. It's a different miracle that's happening. 
And we're probably all familiar with the Latin proverb that repetition is the mother of learning. And we can see that in the ministry of Jesus. Thank God he's going to say things again and show things again because he cares for his disciples. He cares for us. And he wants us to realize some things, to see some things that we often don't see at first. It's evident here. And so this has happened once in a way, and it's, it's certainly happening again in a very similar way. You've got a great crowd, check. They're hungry, check. They're in the wilderness, check. There's not a lot of food, check. Jesus has compassion for them, check. Everything's lining up, deja vu all over again. The disciples should be familiar with this story. We can be familiar with this story. This is a very similar situation that the disciples have been in before. And so what do you expect them to say when Jesus brings up the fact that there's a crowd and they're hungry? We would expect, if we were making this up, that they would say, Jesus, let's do it again, right? We've seen you do amazing things. We know we just can come up with a few loaves of bread and you'll be able to feed and give more than what's needed. Hold on, let's go on a bread hunt. We'll be back in five minutes, right? But that's not what they say. What they do say is like in light of what we've seen earlier, shocking, right? The question they asked Jesus, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And we ought to be asking, like, what, God? Really? Seriously? I think we can stop and just, like, marvel at the patience of Jesus. Like, these disciples have already seen him heal the sick. They have seen him raise the dead. They have seen him just terrify the demonic and deliver people from their oppression. They have seen him change lives with his very word, and they have specifically seen him feed 5,000 people with 12 loaves of bread and a few fish, and they were right in the mix passing that stuff out and picking it up, right? What else do they need to see to believe in the power of Jesus, but graciously and compassionately for the hungry crowd and also for these disciples, Jesus does it again. And they gather seven loaves. He feeds 4,000 people. They gather a few fish. He feeds them all the more. And just like the first time, Jesus provides more than enough. There are seven baskets left over. So what's going on here? (laughs) I don't think the disciples literally forgot, like on the back end, like, oh, wow, we forgot that Jesus did this earlier in a real similar fashion. Like it had not slipped their mind or they weren't suffering from some form of miracle amnesia, right? At least they didn't forget in the way that we primarily define forgetting. They forgot in a way where what Jesus did earlier just didn't mean much to them. The first feeding of the 5,000, it didn't impact them in a way that helped shape and form the way that they viewed Jesus and the way that they viewed how they followed 
Jesus. They had seen the miracle, but the miracle in the real way, it just didn't matter. As I was reading this this week, I I kept on going back in my mind to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and remembering her heart in the Gospel of Luke. As you begin to read the Christmas story and read into her parenting of Jesus, even as a a child, there are these moments where she is struck by something totally miraculous, like an angelic visitation from Gabriel, who's explaining the the Gospel to her and how she's going to have a baby, although she's a virgin. Or there's parenting moments that are even confusing with the young Jesus as, as she's raising him. But she's described in this beautiful way. And we're told that she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. What does that mean? Is that when she encounters the miraculous or even something where she's invited to just try to understand it in a deeper way, that those miracles and those moments, they deeply mattered to her. She held on to them as precious. She would return to them. She would examine them. She would think them over and turn them over and hold them close to her heart. And there's none of that wisdom here with the disciples. They don't ponder. They don't treasure the power of Jesus. They overlook and ignore what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And it's so easy when we kind of then begin to look at our own lives and I begin to look at my own life. It's so easy for me in this moment, especially like in all the ways that the the disciples are so honest in the gospels about how they kind of miss it and don't get it. This to me is kind of like the the mountain of like boneheadedness where you're like, come on guys. You know, it's actually going to get a little worse before it gets better. And I can roll my eyes or kind of face palm and think like, man, what is going on? But if I'm really honest and I slow down and I think about my own life, like how often do I overlook and ignore the power of Jesus? How often do I forget his heart and his compassion and his willingness to provide? Like there was actually a moment this week where, you know, there was some difficulty, uh, just circumstances and things that we were facing as a family this week. And it had been kind of a tough August for the Adair family. And then this, this week, there were some tough moments. And uh, Anna and I often try to connect and talk and share our heart uh, after the kids go to bed. Um, and we were doing that this week. And I, I just, in a way that I think is healthy on one hand, I'm just kind of like in an unfiltered way was sharing how I was feeling with Anna. And I said something along the lines of like, man, I am... Uh, I look at my call to be a Christian and a husband to you and a father to our kids and a pastor to a church. And like, I, there's just no way I'm ever going to be able to do all of those things in, in any way that they're done well. Something is always going to suffer and I feel overwhelmed and something's going to be neglected. And I just, I'm exasperated. I don't know what to do. And there's something that's really healthy about just being able to share where you're at, but there's also truth in that moment as I'm reading the scripture this week where I find myself literally in, in a heart place in that same boat and in this, in this same place as these disciples where I have known some things cognitively like where it, it, it's written in Galatians that I ought to know and all of us ought not grow weary of doing good, but there's something deep down where I had forgotten that in a real way and an evening this past week. 
Or I know in a way and have read and am familiar with Peter's charge to to be humble and cast my anxieties upon Jesus because he cares for me in 1 Peter 5. But there's a real way where I didn't know that a night this week. And if I were to slow down and examine my own heart, I was ignoring and overlooking the power and the compassion and the love for Jesus because I didn't believe that he cared for me and I could humble myself and cast those anxieties at his feet. I think we all have heard truth and borne witness to miracles at times, but that truth and that power cannot mean much to us in moments. And I want to invite you to ask, what does this look like for you here and now this morning? He's struggling with parenting in a way. We feel the weight of that, but you have gone about parenting for a season void of prayer, void of dependency on your father in heaven. You forgot about the the power and the presence of Jesus. Is work difficult and your boss is hard right now and you're feeling hopeless in a way that you've forgotten the power and the presence of Jesus in your life? Perhaps you're struggling with singleness and you feel lonely in deep and real ways and yet you're neglecting the presence that is always with you in Jesus or your marriage is hard. We can go on and on. There are hundreds of us in this room and there's thousands of different applications, but I suspect that we can overlook and ignore and be blind to the power of Jesus in some really significant ways in each and every one of our lives. Well, the story continues with another group of men who can't see. And here I want to pick up where Bajet left off. The third thing I want us to see is some self-righteous rivals. Verse 10, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So the Pharisees kind of abruptly and and angrily enter this story in an argumentative way. And the Pharisees, uh, for the most part, are these self-righteous, religious, elite leaders who think of themselves as extra holy because of the things that they do and the righteousness that they earn on their own. And they're following Jesus and they're jealous of Jesus and they're critical of Jesus and they're increasingly becoming enemies of Jesus. And here they're arguing and we're told that what they're arguing is about is they're demanding a sign from heaven to test Jesus. And this is probably more than just a miracle because they've borne witness themselves to miracles that Jesus has, has done they're, they're demanding like a, a certificate of authenticity. <laughs> they're demanding evidence of the authority of Jesus. In a way, they're saying, hey, prove to us that you're from God. Prove that you're legit. Show us something where we know beyond certainty that you are who we're hearing that you are. And for a second time in our story, Jesus sighs. He feels something deeply. And the first time, it was in the midst of the deafness of a man whose ears couldn't hear. And this time, it's in the midst of a spiritual deafness of spiritual ears that are refusing to hear. And Jesus, we get the feeling, is just 
worn out, exasperated. He's, he's, I think, in a real way saddened and grieved at the state of the heart of these men. They'd seen signs already. They'd seen and heard more than enough to understand the authority of Jesus. They, in a unique way, should have been the first to get it because they so knew the scriptures, but they don't because of their spiritual pride, and they are, in a way, willfully blind spiritually because of their pride to who Jesus is. And so they're demanding, show us a sign from heaven, and literally in front of them is the sign from heaven. Just get the the tragedy of this moment. Jesus, we want to see a sign from heaven. And there is the Son of God who has taken on flesh to, to, to say everything God has to say perfectly to them. And yet they're not listening. They can't see what's right in front of them. Jesus was not what they expected. And the sad part about the story is that he was more than what they could have ever expected. He was better and richer and higher and deeper. He was better news than they dared to dream. But since he wasn't what they exactly expected because of their pride, they couldn't hear what he had to say. They couldn't see the beauty of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And if you're seeking God today, if you're here this morning to to seek a spiritual truth, if you're asking that all-important question, who is Jesus? My prayer for you and what I invite you to pray is that you would pray to God, help me see. I don't want to miss out on what is right in front of me. I don't want to bring false expectations about God and Jesus that are too low and as a result miss out on the high glory and beauty of God, who you truly are and who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Pray, God, would you help me see truth? As we keep moving forward, we see that the Pharisees are not the only ones having trouble seeing Jesus clearly. For we see disciples in darkness. Verse 13, and he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. And now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And They said to him, seven, and Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? And so let's just imagine the moment. They've left this confrontation with the Pharisees. They get into a boat together, Jesus and his 12 disciples, and 
They're alone on the water, and Jesus, he loves them. He has concern for them, compassion for them, and he wants to teach them an important spiritual lesson. And he uses bread as just a metaphor, a word picture, a parable. And he says, hey, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And for those of us that kind of jumped on the bread-making bandwagon in 2020 during COVID, you know, and you just got like all in on sourdough, you know, there's many of you, you, you have an idea of the truth of what Jesus is talking about here. You just put a little yeast in some dough and it has a dramatic effect on the life of that bread, right? And Jesus is saying here, he's giving a warning and he's saying, hey, just a little bit of what the Pharisees have, just a little bit of that self-righteousness, that religion that's a works-based religion, just a little bit of that can have some dangerous and dramatic effect on your life. Hey, just a little bit of posturing for political power and putting your hope in that, just a little bit of, of just being wrapped up exclusively in this world and not thinking of your heavenly father and his kingdom, just a little bit of the irreligion of Herod, that can have drastic and detrimental effects on your spiritual life. Jesus is teaching them something profound, but they're deaf and blind to what he's saying, and in their half-hearted listening, what they catch is bread. And they're like, oh yeah, who was supposed to bring the bread? I see one loaf, there's 13 of us. Peter, was it your turn? James, John. No, didn't you guys say that we were gonna have, and they're stressing out because there's 13 guys and only one loaf. And, and, all the commentaries agree that what's happening here is just like a, a rising argument that's being stirred up about anxiety that they're not going to have enough to eat. <laughs> and so to kind of beat a dead horse, 5,000 fed with just a few loaves, 4,000 fed with just a few loaves, 13 dudes, one loaf of bread, and they're like, what are we going to do? By my math, like seven or 800 people should be covered by that one loaf, right? And yet they're here in the boat with Jesus. He's trying to just pass on profound spiritual truth and they're stressing out like, I'm cutting this up and I'm still gonna be hungry afterwards. Who blew it? And Jesus breaks into the arguing and he's like, why y'all talking about bread? Like seriously, you're fighting about bread. Why are you discussing bread? Do you not perceive or understand? That word that Jesus uses here, perceive, it means have you not, what? Considered deeply. Have you not pondered? Have you not thought through and examined and held onto and treasured what you have seen me do up to this point? When he says, do you not understand? That word is used in other places um, in scripture to describe a collision, like two forces on a battlefield coming together. Have you not put it together, Jesus is asking. Have you not connected the dots? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, but you can't see? Do you have ears, but you can't hear? Do you not remember? And it's interesting where Jesus takes them, right? He, he makes them rehash the story with them of the bread and the people that are hungry, but take note about what he focuses on. He focuses on the abundance when I broke five loaves for the 5,000 guys, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They answered 12. 
And then again, hey, just a little while ago, when we had seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answer him and they say, seven. And then he comes back, do you not yet understand? Understand what? The question, remember, that John Mark is helping us grasp the answer to who is Jesus. Jesus is looking at these guys in the eye and saying, do you not know me even now? One of my favorite preachers is a guy named A.J. Thompson. and He's, he's a, not a personal friend. He's a friend of a friend. Um, and I've, I've met him a few times. I've heard him preach several times. And I was reminded of a story he shared when I was reading this passage this week that stuck with me. It was a story about when he was a boy, like kindergarten, first grade, and he um, was in school, and the book fair, which is always really exciting, was, was at school. And there was something that he wanted to buy, and he asked his teacher, how much do I need to buy that? She said, two quarters. So he goes home that evening, and he tells his dad, when his dad comes home, dad, I need two quarters to buy something at the book fair. Will you give me two quarters, please? And his dad you know, said, oh, we'll see. And he, as many children feel, was under the impression that because his dad didn't give him all that he wanted, whenever he wanted, his dad was prone to hold out on him, which was not true, but was his kindergarten perception of his father at times. And so he goes to open his lunchbox the next day because the book fair trip was going to be immediately after lunch. And he opens his lunchbox and he finds that in his lunchbox is not two quarters, as he asked for, but was one dollar, a dollar bill. So that night when his dad returned home from work, he'd been waiting to talk to his dad all day. And when his dad walked through the door, he walked up to his father and he pulled the dollar bill out of his pocket and he said, all I asked from you was two quarters and you just gave me one dollar. And I think he got a spanking. Um, but then he, as he tells the story, he says, then my mother looked at me and said, you foolish child. Your father has given you more than you asked for. More than you needed. When Jesus asks his disciples, do you not yet understand? He is, he is asking in a very similar way, do you not know me? Even yet, do you not understand the compassion, the, the love, the power, the heart I have for you? Why are you anxious about bread? Don't you know I will provide? Don't you know I am, am the ultimate provider? And don't you remember that how I provide is a way that you always have more than enough of what you truly need? And if we take time to slow down and really examine our own hearts, aren't we right in this boat with them once again? so often like half-heartedly listening to Jesus, forgetting his full heart of power and compassion and love, forgetting his faithfulness and focusing on my problems that seem so close and as a result, they seem so big. Jesus is in the background and as a result, he seems so distant. And yet, his charge and his confrontation to me is, do, do you still not get it? Do you, do you not remember? 
Are you not listening? Are you not seeing? Don't, don't you yet know me? Don't you know my love and my power and my compassion? We're blind to Jesus. But what we need to see as we wrap up is just the beauty of where Jesus is when we're failing to see so often. Lastly and, and fifthly, let's look at a steadfast Savior. Verse 22, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village And when he had spit on his hands, he laid his hands on him and asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. It's kind of a funny ending there where Jesus is up to this point, said, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, and now he ends this story, and he's like, don't even go near anybody. <laughs> but what's interesting about this healing is that, that, you know, this stands alone compared to all the other healings in Scripture that we see Jesus perform, and it's different, it's unique, because it's not immediate, it's progressive, it takes a little time, it comes in stages of restoration, and if we slow down what we see in light of what we've already seen in the hearts of the disciples, is this is really good news. Again, Jesus is being really intentional and purposeful as to how this healing comes about, because he's wanting to teach us something about himself. He lays hands on this blind man, and he asks, then, do you see anything? And the answer is kinda, right? I see men walking around, and they look like trees. Like, if we went and had eye surgery, and that's what we were facing on the back end of that, we would not be content, right? We would not go online and give a good Google review to that doctor, right? That's a a half-done job, and yet Jesus is doing this intentionally because, look, he's not finished. He comes again, lays his hands on this man's eyes, and then he sees, he can see fully. The man can see partially, but Jesus isn't going anywhere. What does this mean for us? It means that at this moment, we see in the disciples' lives that at best, they see in a blurry way. They're perceiving Jesus in a, in a way where it's fuzzy. They don't fully get it, yet Jesus, in the midst of all their misunderstanding and all their forgetfulness and all their misperception, how is Jesus relating to them? He's steadfast. He's faithful. He's patient. And just like he's going to take time with this blind man to be steadfast and patient and present. He takes time with these disciples to stay by their side faithfully and lovingly until they fully perceive and know the true answer to the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Son of God, my Savior, the very Savior of the world. And that is true for us this morning. That if you've been visited by the truth of of Jesus, visited by his power, you know that he has rescued you, saved you, and yet there are times when things seem fuzzy and blurred that we ought not be discouraged, but we can be encouraged because Jesus is by our side. Grace has visited us, and he is not abandoning, he is not getting frustrated, he is not walking away, but he is present 
And he is faithful, and in his power and his love, he is working to clear our vision, to open our ears, to help us celebrate and remember and hold on to who he is. As the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the church in Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That Jesus is faithful in the midst of our blindness and our hard-heartedness and our inability or unwillingness even to hear that he is by our side healing and opening and help us, helping us to see. This is the good news of who Jesus is. Let's pray.